Imagine this. You are a rescue diver. You've been called to help find survivors of a tugboat that overturned in bad weather. You and your co-workers decided that on the first day, the weather is too rough and the conditions are too dangerous. By day two, you know that you are looking for dead bodies. The boat sits a hundred feet deep and the water here is dark. Not only that, but the swiftly moving water that is kicking up sediment makes the visibility nearly zero. Your only choice is to search by feel with your hands, with very limited vision. The first day that you spend on the seafloor was difficult. You and your three-man team had to break away through two locked doors and navigate your way around the boat that landed top-down on the ocean floor. Even with the poor conditions and the very cold water, you find four bodies. You bring them to the surface so their families can say a final farewell. The following day, you enter the water, hoping to find the eight remaining crew. You are feeling around, not knowing whether there are predators in the boat with you. A voice is coming through your mask from the mothership, trying to guide you as best they can through the boat. Suddenly, you see something in arm's reach of your face. It's a hand. You tentatively reach towards it, touching it, expecting cold, dead flesh. When you grasp the hand firmly, its fingers curl around your hand. You are holding this hand of a survivor who has been underwater for 60 hours. This is the story of that survivor. Harrison Okane. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. This is the podcast that tells true crime stories and twisted travel stories from all over the world. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much. Please consider becoming a monetary supporter of the podcast. You'll see a link in the episode description that will allow you to do so. That's also where you will find the show notes. Another way to support the podcast is to give it a five-star rating and leave a nice comment. I would really appreciate those few moments of your time. I'd like to say thank you to Ray Adele Ahmed. I really hope I didn't botch your name too badly, Ray. He's amazing, and he designed the fabulous new cover art. It's absolutely beautiful. Today's story is a little less true crime and a little more twisted travel. For those of you who don't know, I do live on a boat and we're currently at anchor and the weather is not agreeing with my podcasting. So you are going to hear the sound of the water against the hull. Normally I try to edit that out, but I might let that go today. It goes pretty well with the story. We'll see how it turns out. Enjoy. Harrison Okane wakes up just before dawn. He is pulled out of his sleep by the sound of a wave hitting the side of his boat. He gets out of bed, dressed in only his boxers. He moves unsteadily to the shared crew bathroom. As he sits, slowly waking up, he hears the sound of someone yelling. The boat begins to lean, but not the normal swaying to and fro that he had become accustomed to on that stormy night. It keels over and capsizes. He is thrown out of the bathroom into a small hallway where we can see his crewmates racing towards the exit. At the same time, water is rushing in. It's complete chaos. He sees that one of the men is holding the VHF radio in his hands and is attempting to call for help. 
Then the lights flicker and all the lights and electronics go out. Two men are near the doors that are closed and locked. It was security protocol that the doors remain locked when the crew are sleeping. The water is rushing in through the windows and breezeways. The two men are engulfed in rushing water and disappear. Harrison is thrown backwards down the hall. He begins swimming and is pushed back into the bathroom. The door slams shut and locks. He is trapped. He feels the impact of the ship hitting the seafloor. Harrison was a religious man. He was married for five years, but he and his wife had not had any children, though they had been trying. He began to pray. He asked God to spare him because he didn't want to leave his wife alone. He was afraid he was going to die. As he prayed, he could hear the shouts of his friends and the water rushing into the boat. It wasn't long before the screams went silent. Then he heard the sound of air bubbles and the metallic sound of the boat settling, creaking and groaning into the seafloor. It's dawn on May 26, 2013 in Scarvos, Nigeria. A dive support vessel receives a mayday from a tug vessel called the Jascon 4 that ran into difficulty during a storm. It was about 15 nautical miles offshore. It had capsized and sunk with 12 crewmen aboard. They were asked to assist in body recovery. Harrison held his place in the tiny bathroom, cold, shivering, with only a small pocket of air to breathe. He knew his time was limited. He had to do something. He forced the door open and swam out into the dark, cold water. He found other air bubbles, and the powers that be must have heard his prayers because he found a larger air pocket. It was about three meters long and two meters high. He was becoming so cold that his body was beginning to betray him. He knew he had to warm up. He looked around his space and found a mattress that had floated up to the surface. He lay it along one wall, supporting it with pieces of wood that he was able to pull off the walls. He was able to elevate himself partway out of the water. All of this was done in pitch black darkness. Imagine holding your breath to swim, not being able to see, wondering if you were going to be able to find a place to breathe your next breath. He had taken some rope that he had found and tied it to several locations around the boat so that he could find his way back to his air pocket. He was able to find two flashlights, one of which was attached to a life jacket. They both ran out of batteries in the first 24 hours. He was able to find one can of Coca-Cola. This was the only sustenance he would have for the duration of his time underwater. He believed that someone would be coming to search the wreckage. Perhaps they would see his ropes. Time passed quickly as he had no watch and the darkness was so complete. He had no idea whether it was night or day. As he sat in silence, he could hear the sounds of large fish, he believed to be sharks, eating his crewmates. Back on land, Harrison's brother receives a phone call, one that would turn his life upside down, one that shakes him to his core. His brother's boat has sunk. He sits in a state of shock, trying to absorb the information that is being given to him. The caller reports that a rescue boat has been sent, but that the weather is very bad. 
He knows he should call Harrison's wife, but uses the excuse that her phone had been lost for a few days before to delay the delivery of the terrible news. He decides to wait until he hears more. He says he doesn't want to worry her. Under the sea, Harrison is cold, hungry, and thirsty. He was the cook for the ship, so he knew where all the food was located. He tried to reach the galley, but it got too cold too fast, and the distance was too far for him to go and be able to hold his breath. He just couldn't get enough air. Water was literally all around him, but there was none for him to drink. He began to smell something decomposing. Suddenly, in the silence, he hears a sound. He sits listening intently and realizes that he recognizes the sound as a boat and it's very near. The motor is running 100 feet above him and it seems to be staying in place. Soon the sound of chains sliding across metal can be heard and it's followed by the clang of a metal anchor hitting the ocean floor. A minute or two later, it's silence once again. Time passes very slowly. Okene is thinking about his family, his brother, his mother, his wife. He recites the psalms over and over to pass the time. A clanging noise reverberates through the hull of the boat. It's the sound of metal hitting metal. He hears divers outside the boat. He chooses to dive under the water and swim as close as he can to the sound. He hits the metal hull with a hammer, trying to get the attention of the divers. He attempts this over and over until he is too cold once again. Where he lives, he knows it's usually a balmy 80 degrees, but here in the sea, on the ocean floor, it feels frigid. His body is cold, weak from hunger, and the injuries he sustained when being thrown by the water. He's fighting them and healing from them. He's already dehydrated after what seems to him like a very long time. He sees light inside the boat. He swims towards the diver, but the diver moves too quickly. Harrison has a choice to make. Follow the diver, knowing he may not be able to catch up, but knowing for sure that he will run out of air, or return to the oxygen and the safety of his air pocket. The continued sounds keep his spirit high, hoping that he will see some light again. But they, too, fade away to nothing. Once again, all he hears is the sea life, the groans of the boat. He hears nothing, he sees nothing, but he can still smell decomposition and feels the cold clawing at his weakened body. He can't pull himself out of the water completely, so he moves around, splashing the water to keep himself a little warmer. Eventually, even this effort is too much. Time continues to pass, he sleeps sitting up in the water or curled in a wet, semi-submerged ball. Above him, the rescue divers, three of them, are returning to the boat with four dead bodies they have salvaged from the wreckage. They plan to return the next day to continue their body recovery efforts, but in the meantime, they strategize. They eat a big, delicious meal to help keep their bodies warm from the cold day and the hard work they had just done and they go to bed in warm, comfortable beds. On dry land, Harrison's wife is getting a little upset. 
She usually gets a nightly phone call from Harrison to talk about the day and to connect with one another. She's frustrated that he isn't answering her phone calls, and he's, she is missing the sound of his voice. Day three for Harrison, day two for the body recovery divers. The divers awake early and prepare their gear for what they hope will be a safe dive. There are strict limitations to how much time they can spend under the water at 100 feet deep. These divers are using full head masks that look like what spacemen wear. Air is pumped from above down through an umbilical to the three divers. These divers have to work quickly and efficiently as their time at depth must be limited or they could suffer from narcosis. Narcosis is also called the martini effect. It occurs when someone is at deep depth for too long. It's similar to being put under anesthesia or being drunk. Thinking becomes clouded at a minimum. At the worst, it can cause hallucinations and unconsciousness. Narcosis is reversible by rising to the surface slowly. If, the ri if they rise too quickly, nitrogen can form bubbles inside their bodies. The trapped air can travel to joints, lungs, and even your heart, which left untreated may lead to death. They enter the boat more easily on day two, as they had to break through two locked doors the day before. They begin where they left off. As they move further up into the tug, Harrison sees the light of the first diver. He swims toward the diver, but is unable to reach him once again. He has to return to his air pocket to breathe. He waits, praying for another chance. After a time, a second diver carefully maneuvers into the cabin. The divers are extremely careful not to get their umbilicals caught on debris. They also have to worry about the boat shifting. It has only been on the ocean floor for a short time. The current could turn the boat on its side, or the boat, as it settles further into the ocean floor, could shift, trapping the divers inside, cutting off their air supply. The second diver moves by feel around the cabin. He is speaking with the crew above so they can track his movements. Suddenly he feels something touch his neck. He stiffens, adrenaline shooting through his body. He turns, and he sees a hand. The hand swaying in front of him is in arm's reach. He says into the microphone, Corpse, corpse, it's a corpse. He reaches toward it, grabbing a hold of the fingers. As he does so, Harrison closes his fingers around the diver's gloved hands. A stunned millisecond of silence ensues before you hear the diver and the crewman above shouting, He's alive! It's a survivor! The diver continues to hold Harrison's hand and rises with him to his air bubble. The look on Harrison's face when he meets the eyes of the diver is a mix of relief, fear, and happiness. And as I'm sitting here just thinking about what I saw on the video, which you can find online, I'm getting goosebumps. His eyes are large and he looks like he's about to cry. The men above are telling the diver to comfort Harrison. Put your hand on his shoulder, they say. The video continues with the diver asking Harrison's name, what position he held on the boat. Harrison reports that the diver kept looking at him, evaluating him. Harrison believed that the diver thought he was a ghost, or worse. After a short time, the diver gave Harrison water. 
The men above were making frantic phone calls to Holland to ask for advice on how to bring him up to the surface without causing harm. Divers brought down warm water to help warm Harrison up. He was suffering from mild narcosis. Once he was feeling a bit better, they taught him how to use one of the diving helmets. He had to swim out with the divers to a diving bell. The diving bell looks a lot like a bell, hence its name. He could stand inside and have his head out of the water. He was taken to the surface. There he had to spend two and a half days in a decompression chamber to make sure he wouldn't have any negative effects from the nitrogen. The smell of decomposition followed him. His tongue had begun to rot in the salt water. He was smelling his own decay. While recovering in the hospital, his wife was called and she was finally able to come see him. So how did he survive in such a small space with such little air? Apparently, as the boat sank, the air in the room with the air pocket was also compressed by about four times. This gave him enough air for those 60 hours, and scientists say that he may have had enough air for two more days. When Harrison was finally allowed to go home, he went to his pastor for help dealing with survivor's guilt. The pastor asked him if he used black magic. This comment caused Harrison to decide not to attend the funerals of his shipmates. He was afraid people might be suspicious of him. To this day, he wakes up in his bed at night, sometimes feeling like the bed is sinking. He will wake up screaming, believing that he is going underwater. While he was praying a hundred feet of wet darkness above him, resting on the ocean floor, he made a deal with God that if he survived, he would never, ever get on a boat again. Today he works as a chef on terra firma. Like I said earlier, when I heard this story and I saw the footage, it gave me chills. So I'm going to put the link uh, in the show notes if you want to see it yourself. I am blown away by this man and the fact that he survived. He is a true aquanaut or a real-life aquaman. In fact, if they made Harrison Okane's story into a movie, you know, Jason Momoa would probably be good for the role. Never can get enough Jason Momoa, just saying. It's a good thing my husband doesn't ever listen to my podcasts, or I might be in trouble. I want to finish with a travel story from a woman named Casey. She has a Instagram account called Casey to and fro. She is talking about an unusual couch surfing experience. So couch surfing is a website that connects you with locals while you're traveling. You can hit somebody up to take you on a tour or stay in their house or um, whatever you might need. And your host will potentially help you your goals. So Casey was staying at an eco hotel in Uganda which was a beautiful place, in her opinion, to disconnect and experience the lake. The lake inspired Wakanda from Black Panther. But she wanted to immerse herself in the local culture a little bit more. So she was looking for a host who was from the lake, and she found a man named Josh. He told her that he could pick her up at the hotel with his canoe, and he could, and that she could spend the night at his home. When Josh came to pick her up... 
he saw that her his boat had no motor and only one paddle so she's sitting in his boat while he's working paddling 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 and they talked a lot about their lives she thanked josh numerous times for picking her up and because the ride was taking so long she finally asked what time he left his house to come pick her up he told her that he left at 5 a.m so she did the math really quickly and realized that that meant her canoe ride would take four hours she had no idea and wasn't prepared for it so during the canoe ride it started to pour and they took the canoe to land and hid under a tree until the rain passed she thought the whole situation was funny and that it was such an unusual experience. The boat ride was enjoyable and she appreciated the slow pace. After those four hours, she went to Josh's home and she loved it right away. She could tell that he had spent a lot of time and a lot of love on his home. His house was far away from the regular amenities like grocery stores, but that was okay because there were plenty of fruits and vegetables in his garden and he even taught her to make the infamous Rolex that you'll find as a street food throughout Uganda. She said that she and Josh were similar ages, but their lives were very different. He would wake up and decide what he wanted to do that day to entertain himself. And that might be building something new for his boat or his dock or going to visit his friends that's in the village or, you know, taking a canoe trip for a day-long trip to pick up some crazy couch surfer. Thank you so much for listening today. One of my favorite things to do is to look at all the different countries that are listening. I'm absolutely delighted to see the diversity. I'd like to share these countries with you. We have Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Ireland, Bahamas, Turkey, Germany, Zimbabwe, India, South Africa, the Netherlands, Tunisia, Russia, Sweden, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Norway, Romania, France, Pakistan, Mexico, and of course the good old U.S. of A. You all make my heart sing. Thank you, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.